Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solutions L3C. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Bridging Chicago. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. This week we are ending our Women's History Month episodes and we've been really grateful for all the women who have come on to the podcast and shared with us and we hope that you've learned and you've been inspired by them. I know that I definitely have. And so we're wrapping up Women's History Month, although we obviously will have many more women who will come on and share, but we're excited today to be joined by Sarah Spunt of Lyft Chicago. You may be familiar with Sarah. She's actually been on the podcast before alongside uh, then executive director, but uh, Sarah came on with Saul Anderson, who was then the executive director and has since uh, taken over the position. Saul left to go to another great organization and Sarah uh, stepped into that position. And so we're excited for Sarah to share with us what's a little different and what um, has changed over the past year of obviously a different landscape for the country and the world really, but um, we're excited for her to share about that. But first we wanna give you a little reintroduction to Sarah. So. Sarah, why don't you tell us about who you are, where you're from, and just give us a, a short little introduction as to Sarah Spunt. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on again. I'm, I'm grateful to be here and share about um, my journey um, with Lyft and through my career uh, and excited. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in Naperville, um, just west of the city, and I've been with Lyft Chicago for the past um, almost seven years. It will be seven years um, this May. And I came in as our, our program manager um, and became our program lead in 2016 or 2015, actually. And when the opportunity presented itself um, to be the next executive director, I was, I was really excited uh, I'm really passionate about the work that Lyft does to support families here in Chicago around economic mobility um, and how we provide wraparound support um, to parents in this city. And so to be able to develop and design our program, as we shared in the last episode, um, was a, a huge honor. And I'm excited to step in um, as the executive director when I was thrilled um, to be offered the position uh, and just had a lot of excitement around this opportunity to lead Lyft in our next chapter. We are in a state of growth and scale, not just here in Chicago, but across the country. And so looking forward to leading the team um, over the next couple of years through that growth and scale. A little bit more about my background. Um, I have a background in clinical social work. So I am a licensed clinical social worker and I have been um, in the field for almost uh, 15 years and excited to um, just share about that journey along with what we're doing here in Chicago to support families, particularly support women here in the city. Yeah, we're always really excited to get to uh, 
to catch up with with Lyft because what you're doing is so important because I think that one of the things that we really appreciate is it's not just trying to solve issues that are happening right now, but it's really looking at generational resolutions to some systemic issues that have been happening in the city of mm -hmm. Chicago. And Lyft is a, a nationwide organization, so we know that you have partners in, or you have Lyft communities in, in D.C. and New York, I believe, and um, Asia. New York, yeah, D.C., New and York, LA. and L.A. Okay. I was right. <laughs> Those are the three I knew of, yes. but I was like, yes, yes. there's more. But, um, no, and so we're, we're, we're so honored to get to be a part of the Chicago Lyft community. Um, like I said, if you haven't had a chance to learn about Lyft and about what they do, we want to be sure that you go back to our prior episode where we were able to sit down with Saul and Sarah and to talk about what Lyft does and about why that's important to Chicago. Um, but Sarah, can you share with us a little bit here what the what the basic essence or heart of Lyft is and, and what it is kind of boots on the ground trying to do for the city? Yeah, so we work with parents on economic mobility to break the cycle of intergenerational poverty. We believe the best way to set children up for success is to invest directly into families, particularly investing into parents and working on their career, financial, and educational goals. So we take an approach of working one-on-one -on -one with parents, focusing on financial strength, uh, social connections, and personal health and well-being, or what we call hope, money, and love. Um, and those three things working together uh, helps put parents on a path to economic, most, um, economic stability and mobility and sets their kids up for a trajectory of economic mobility as well. And so I'm hearing that you take list resources and invest them in people and in families. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these words invest stabilize mobility all come you know those pop out in in what you were sharing and so one of the questions that i have for you is why like when you're investing your resources whether it's money time some talent that you have it's obviously a big investment and so for for you personally and maybe for lift as an organization why is it so important that you take your resources and pour them into other communities or pour them into other families? Yeah. Oh, that is, that's such a great question. I think um, for me personally, it comes from two, two standpoints um, and two values that I hold. Um, one is to make the, to make the world a better place, right? Um, to, to leave the world better than I entered it. And along that side is I entered this world in a very privileged um, seat. I grew up in a very affluent neighborhood. I went to amazing public schools. I had strong support systems, both within my family and through social capital. And I recognize um, what that privilege is um, and what that privilege means um, as a white woman um, in this city. And I, I think it's important when we talk about breaking cycles of intergenerational poverty or, or building assets and wealth into family, we have to recognize the disparities um, that our city faces and that our country faces. And I, I, 
hold it as a value as as a, a person person of privilege it, it, it's my responsibility to make sure that I name that privilege and learn from that privilege and also figure out a, a solution um, to bridging some of the inequities um, and fixing some of the inequities that have been built into our systems. Um, and while I can't do that as an individual, even just naming it is important um, and investing my energy into calling out um, the disparities that we see through economic investments here in our city and into other communities in our country. Um, and really understanding how a lot of communities, a lot of people, particularly uh, people of color, have been stripped of their wealth and stripped of their opportunities due to systematic inequalities. And personally, I view that as part of what I do to make the world a better place is to name that and help design solutions, whether it is through a program, um, or, and I don't want to just say a program like Lyft, but really Lyft as an organization. We are um, across the country naming um, the importance of race equity um, in our country and in our cities, and it's crucial to the work that we do. And so it, it's part of the fabric of who we are as an organization as well to make sure um, when we talk about intergenerational poverty, we also name the policies and systems that have caused the intergenerational poverty in the first place and helping design solutions, whether it's through a direct service program or influencing um, the political system and offering up new policy ideas or getting our families' voices at the table when policymakers are making decisions. We ho hold that true to our core and it's amazing to be a part of. Um, I'm truly honored and I'm truly blessed to be a part of it. And I don't say that lightly because not everyone gets to wake up and do what they love. And I do. And that is um, an excellent place to be. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was really important. And that I think that um, is one of the big struggles in, in this is uh, you were talking about privilege and your privilege. and uh, I took a, a seminar that talked about the privilege wheel and how everyone has a certain level of privilege and it sort of starts in the middle and the further mm -hmm. out you go, the less privilege you sort of have. And so in the middle is yes. kind of the straight, white, male, identified, um, mm -hmm. cis male identified, and then you kind of go out from there. And so it, it's good for helping people to understand that no matter what, you have some level of privilege. It just is kind of dependent upon, you know, where you're at and that. And so one of the things that, that we've seen that's really difficult is people looking at privilege as a, as a bad thing saying, oh, I'm, I'm bad because I, you know, was born straight, white, and male. And it's really not about, you know, privilege as a bad thing, but as you were sharing, it's privilege as a tool or as a resource. And so for you, can you tell me what it was like sort of coming to the point where you could accept your privilege and then sort of turning that into something that could be good for, for other people as well? Yeah. Um, I think it's also to point out as I answer this question is acknowledging 
privilege, particularly for me, acknowledging my white privilege is step one, and it's continuous education um, and continuous self-education of myself, making sure that I am, um, one, always leading with empathy um, and approaching life with empathy, but two, understanding that everyone walks a different um, life and I will never fully understand all aspects of all people in the sh- in their in their life adventures and the and the challenges that they have faced and the barriers that they have overcome. But if I lead with em- empathy and truly listen for the the sense of understanding, that that's step one of it. Um, and I, I'm naming that because I think oftentimes when people resist the idea. Um, that they have privilege, it's um, it's because of a false narrative that privilege equals no problems, right? And no one's saying that. It's just the problems that I am facing aren't due to the color of my skin. Um, and I, once I acknowledged that, um, and it's been a journey, I was first introduced to the concept of white privilege in undergrad and explored it more when I did AmeriCorps and then in graduate school for social work, really dived into my identity. And Lyft has also, over the course of the seven years that I've been there, have spent a lot of time and resources for staff to um, come to an understanding of race equity and how we can put that at the front of our work as an organization. Um, and so in that level setting that I just did of like, privilege and like why I view it as a, as an, I think you asked like, why is it also turning it and using it as an asset to help other people? Um, sometimes it's also learning to step back <laughs> and listen, um, and know that I need to create room for people and not take up too much space with my white privilege too. Right. So I may be able to get my foot in the door or a seat at a table more easily than um, a woman of color, but it's also my responsibility to then open up that door to her, pull up the seat with her, and then move over to get out of their way. Um, Because that's really where you use your privilege is to make room for other people as well. That doesn't take away from my voice um, or what I have to say, but it's giving space to others. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a really great uh, breakdown of that and explanation of how privilege is often looked at as a negative, but it's just something to recognize and, and something to consider when you're, when you're doing this kind of work of inclusion where, you know, no one's blaming you for being born the way that you are. We just don't want to be set back because of being born the way that we are. Uh, and so... Thank exactly. you for, for breaking that down for us. Um, in a year where organizations really had to look at themselves and say, okay, what are the most important things that we want to focus on? And what's the change that we believe we can make, not just given our current landscape of you know COVID world, but also of uh, the way that the culture and society in the U.S. is right now. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we continue to see just not just racial injustice, but uh, but hate, hate crimes. You know, the mm-hmm. Asian American community is really 
being hit hard right now. And, and obviously we, we condemn that. We do, we do not want any people group to be hated on. Um, but in the, in the landscape of the world that we're in, how does Lyft prioritize what is most important for them? Because there seems to be so much to do. How does Lyft prioritize mm -hmm. what is important to them and what they can actually do you know, in, in this current climate? Yeah, I think there's things that we have done um, on more of a macro level of our influence. And one is um, really taking a stand um, against the hate in our communications, whether it's on social media or uh, donor newsletters or other publications and calling out the inequities um, not that, not just through that our country has faced through, um, the racial awakening that has occurred over, um, this past year, but also naming, um, the disparities that have been pointed out due to COVID that have always been in existence in our country, right? Like these inequities aren't new. They've been around since the formation of our country. And even before that, um, it is pointing out that COVID has shined a bright light on them and putting us in a space to name it um, in our communications when we're talking to people about our work and naming it how it's a, a core reason of why we do what we do with our families. Um, so that's more on, on, a, on a micro level. Um, I'm sorry, on a macro level. <laughs> I'm confusing my, my terms right now. On a macro level. On a micro level, looking at like working directly with our parents. So we, and listening to what they need. Um, last March, to this date, we transitioned our program to go 100% virtual. Um, we also sent out a survey to our parents and 93% of them reported losing all or some of their income when the shelter in place orders happened last year. 93% of the people that we serve. Um, and we knew we needed to act because we're talking about people not being able to pay rent. We're talking about people not being able to put food on the table. Um, and so Lyft in partnership with um, organizations here in Illinois, then across the country and some of our own um, private funders, um, through a couple of different pools, we're able to fundraise and get out um, money, not just to Lyft families, but to other families across the country. But for Lyft families specifically, here in Chicago, we gave out over two hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars to parents directly in order for them to be able to make ends meet during this time. Across the country, we gave out one point two million dollars, um, and each family was able to receive um, that, those direct funds from Lyft. And that is something we were able to activate on because we already had um, a cash transfer program built into our program. We had a system in place internally where we could distribute those funds uh, to families. Um, and we were able to uh, listen to what they needed. We asked on average, how much do you need? Um, and we saw our supporters and we saw the philanthropic community here in Chicago and across the country step up and provide funding to give out cash directly to families. This was before the government provided any form of stimulus payment. Uh, people reacted um, in a way uh, that was necessary to make sure people could keep a roof over their head and food on the tables for their children. And so um, 
when we talk about like the needs of the needs of humans, like we're seeing human responses. And I think that is where, um, it shines a bright light into a lot of the darkness and a lot of the hate that is going on. And I think it's important to, um, name the hate and name a lack of tolerance for it or no tolerance at all for it. And also shine light onto the beautiful things that are happening and people coming together, um, to help people stabilize during this, um, continuous crisis that is going on. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned were the funds and I kind of want to go deeper in a little there because one of the things that people sometimes struggle with is giving money to people and saying like, well, if I give them money, are they going to use it in the proper way? Or is it like giving them a mm -hmm. handout? Or I, I think people yeah. struggle with like giving funds versus giving other things. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit on why you feel it's important that we actually get money into the hands of the people who need it and allow them to care for their families that way rather than saying, oh, we should be giving them, you know, we should be doing canned food drives or, or other things that are good things. But but why is it important for you, to you, that lift or that you focus on funds in the hands of the families? Because mm -hmm. I think it's important to trust families. I think we have created a narrative that started um, in the 90s around welfare reform and um, a welfare queen that is just absolutely false. Um, and I believe it's important to trust families um, and know that they want what's best for their their children and their families. Um, and evidence shows that if you invest directly into families, particularly women, they spend the money on their children and in their communities. And recently, over the past couple of years, throughout our country, there have been different guaranteed income or universal basic income um, programs that have um, recently published results. Um, and they show that less than 1% of people who receive any form of direct cash assistance use it on drugs and alcohol. And that's the biggest narrative, the biggest false narrative is that if you give people money, they are going to spend it inappropriately, particularly they're going to use it on drugs and alcohol. And the data shows the exact opposite. It also shows to increase um, maternal mental health and maternal well-being, um, decreasing rates of depression. And so not only are you able to provide cash to people to help them um, reach their, their career goals, their business goals, their economic goals, um, but it also has an impact on personal well-being and physical well-being as well, which is just as important when we think of serving people and serving families, it's one thing to get put money in people's pockets, but it's another thing when their their health, their physical and mental health have a positive um, outcome. And that creates a longer term um, life trajectory um, for people as well uh, when they have better physical health. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I that's, that's something that even I hadn't really thought about, but, you know, trusting the people to, to do what they need to do to care, because we've seen that so many times where people are going to take care of their families and, and they, they want to be able to work to care for their families. They want to be able to, to do what they know they need to do in order to make sure that 
their families are being provided for. But something that we've been learning a lot about, especially in this month, but I think lately on the podcast here, we've been learning about the concept of generational wealth. And so families not Mm -hmm. just being able to care for themselves in those times or at those moments, but actually building generational wealth, which I know is something that Lyft really focuses on. And I really appreciate seeing that that's really at the core of what, what you what you all are doing there is building on generational wealth. And so can you explain the difference there a little bit about like the difference between helping families now and helping them build kind of wealth for the future and and why it's important to understand those two differences? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand that they also go hand in hand, right? Um, Especially now during, um, at the rates of unemployment that we are seeing, particularly for uh, uh, the black community as well. It's at the highest level of unemployment that our country and that our city has ever seen. Um, and so when we think of working with uh, parents on economic mobility or building um, wealth um, and asset development, it, it starts where the parents are at. And Every parent that walks through a lift door is coming to us in a different space. Some parents might be looking to find a full-time job. Some parent might already have a full-time job with benefits or without benefits and are looking to find a full-time job with benefits. Some parents are looking to finish their um, educational program, whether it's a GED, a micro certification, um, associate's degree. And so one, it's helping parents, um, where they are currently at and meeting them where they're currently at and looking at what do they want to do in the short term for economic stability and mobility, and then how can they develop a plan for the long term as well. Um, and that that's part of it. The other is looking at the systematic barriers that have been created um, to strip wealth um, in our city, particularly around fines and fees. Um, A few years ago, a report came out from the Woodstock Institute um, that uh, people who live on the south and the west side of Chicago are disproportionately ticketed for non-moving violations. We're talking about parking tickets. And as a result, if people can't pay their parking tickets, you know, in the city of Chicago, if you don't pay your ticket, you get another one. And eventually you get a boot. And if you have a boot on your car, you can't drive anywhere. And if you can't drive anywhere, you can't go to your job. And therefore, you can't make money to pay off these high fines, um, and then your car might get impounded. And so it just creates this cycle of not being able to um, be able to continue employment and making money to reach your goals. And so Lyft worked with um, a variety of organizations throughout um, the city of Chicago to help elevate awareness of what is going on with these fines and fees. And now there is a policy in place that you can't lose your driver's license um, for non-moving violations, right? And so being able to maintain your license means you can still drive to work and not risk um, getting other tickets and violations and more fines and fees to just add up over and over again. Um, The other part of that study was the number one reason for chapter eight, Chapter 7 and 8 bankruptcy in the city of Chicago were parking tickets. People are filing bankruptcy over parking tickets in the city. And it's important that we talk about things that have stripped wealth when we talk about building assets and wealth and economic mobility for people as well. Because 
Programs like Lyft or other economic mobility programs can only do so much if a family is facing an entire system that is working against them. And, and if you want to learn more about that particular part of it, I think revisiting the first podcast that we did with Lyft Chicago would be great. Also, revisiting the Volunteers of America Illinois podcast and the one, the two that we did with Kara Chicago are also great resources because I think those guests really give a good understanding of what the systematic struggles are and what they're doing to help combat that and how people can partner with them to do that work. And I think that it's something that can seem daunting to people because when you think of systems, you think of political systems, you think of obviously like the governmental mm -hmm. and the, even the city. And it's not even just the city systems in, you know, city hall, but it's the neighborhood system that Chicago has, where we still have a lot of mm -hmm. segregation here. And I have, uh, I've had black guests, I've had Latino guests come on who say, I don't feel like downtown is for me. I don't feel like the loop is for me. And, you know, I know that the loop prides itself on being for everyone, but it hasn't been traditionally what they've seen. And so... Mm -hmm. We have been able to talk to a lot of great people who are helping to combat that. And so revisiting those, if you want more information on that, I think is great. But uh, I think just kind of attacking it in a way where, you know, yeah, it can seem daunting because it is big, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think that that's kind of where people struggle is because it seems so big, it also seems impossible. But as we've seen with the work that Lyft is doing and other organizations, it's not impossible. It just takes people who are willing to do that first next step. So whether for you, it's just learning and just, you know, researching, Googling about racial inequality, you know, women and uh, in, in feminism and, uh, or equality of any kind right now, maybe you just Google about, uh, Asian American hate and what's happening there. Just educating yourself as step one is always good. But but Sarah, maybe you can share with us about for people who, okay, I've done step one. I know that I'm passionate about something. There's something that I've learned that's really stirred up inside of me. What is, what is that next step there? What, what can people do to kind of say, okay, how do we put boots on the ground and take this into action? Because that's what, what your organization is doing and other great organizations are doing but you know I work at a law firm other people maybe they're in finance maybe they're in other organizations where they don't get to do that as a job so mm -hmm. what are some of those steps or what are some of those resources that people can look at even if it's just connecting with, with you all there yeah I think like you said connect finding an organization um, that is doing work that you are passionate about and finding ways that you can um, volunteer, um, invest um, financially um, if you have uh, the funds to do it. Um, even a, a meaningful dona donation um, is, as an executive director of, from someone who is truly connected to the mission, um, touches my heart um, sometimes more than people who can um, write big checks. Now we're grateful for people who can write big checks. Don't get us wrong, but it's when people who are um, truly invested in our work and know they have limited means, but it's important for them to invest in our work. Um, that's where um, it's that little extra heart 
um, tug for me. Uh, so that's one is finding an organization that um, you're passionate about and figuring out the best way for you to invest your time, resources, whatever is meaningful to you. Um, the second I would be, I would say is if you are looking to join more um, community organizing groups, um, particularly if you are looking to be a white ally, it's really important that you follow the leadership of the people leading those groups already um, and not trying to come in with your ideas or your, your solution. And it goes back to using your privilege to create space. Um, so if you are looking to um, truly be an ally and joining community organizing, whether you're joining um, a local protest or a community town hall or whatever it is that you come in with the mentality of being a follower and not a leader and following in the footsteps of the organizers who are already there um, is the next um, advice I could give. Um, other things I really like to do, just even like looking at websites like anti-racism and like becoming anti-racist is really um, important. If you're looking more specifically about how to get involved with Lyft, you can go to our website at whywelift.org or follow us on social at all of them are at, at Lyft Communities um, or email chicago at whywelift.org to get directly involved with our Chicago office, um, but a lot of ways um, to get plugged in locally as well. We mentioned that you recently were uh, elevated to the position of executive director there at Lyft. And so that means you're now leading the Lyft Chicago team. And so mm -hmm. I'd like for you to share a little bit about that transition. And then along with that, share about what you've already seen in the Lyft team. And obviously you've been there for some time, but what you've already seen in the Lyft team from the top that really inspires you and really shows you that they're in it with you and that they're in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is um, while I was transitioning into um, executive director, some people on our team transitioned into roles, um, other roles within the organization at our at our national office. So we we have a fairly new team um, of people that I'm working with. So we brought on um, three new people, one obviously to replace my role as the program director um, and some other program staff. And so it's been inspiring to watch um, our team, both new and veteran, um, to just jump in during this transition, um, learn quickly, pivot when we need to, um, to serve families. Um, at the core of Lyft, not just in Chicago, but across the organization, we are truly a mission-driven organization. Um, we truly value the work that we do. And so we know everyone, regardless of their position, whether it's our CEO um, or um, an operations associate um, and everywhere in between our coaches, um, everyone wants um, to provide the best quality support to the, the parents and the families that we serve. And knowing that everyone is showing up, giving their best particularly this past year when it has been hard to show up and give your best with everything going on. Um, it's, it's inspirational to watch that, particularly our frontline workers, our coaches who are meeting with our parents um, 
and hearing their stories and hearing their struggles and looking at um, ways to support them uh, throughout this pandemic. Um, it's It's been a an honor to watch it um, and an honor to hear how, despite all the challenges this year has faced, our parents' tenacity has shined through. And even when parents were um, not able to go to their jobs or their children's school or um, daycare or early learning center were not open, um, they still put their families and their goals at the forefront um, to the point where in virtual coaching, our retention went up and like we were able to um, serve more families and meet with them more often because uh, they wanted to double down on their goals and supporting their family as well. Yeah. Well, we have so much more to share with you uh, and Sarah has much more to share with us. And so we're going to break here. We're going to make a two part episode. And so this is going to end part one and we want to make sure that you come back and uh, hear part two next week when it is released, it will be released uh, the following Thursday. And so in that time, it gives you time to go back and listen to some of the other episodes that we mentioned that, uh, that really speak to the systems that uh, Sarah has been sharing with us. And so make sure you do that, but uh, this is going to end part one. And uh, again, part two will be released next week. So we'll look forward to seeing you in part two. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.